Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and each episode I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about their tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today it's my great pleasure to be talking with Vince Fiser. He's been on Shorewords before. You might remember him from World of a Grain. And he's now come up with another story, another fascination with the coast and ocean, that being deep sea mining. But before we dive into what he's up to now, a word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Vince, this magazine article and Wired of the mining industry's next frontier is deep, deep under the sea. It's scary, it's interesting, it's fascinating what we can do with technology now. But when we spoke before, you had a great reason for having gotten into sand. And I'm wondering if you have as fascinating a story behind how you decided to go into deep sea mining. What got this topic fascinating to you? (laughs) Gotcha. Um, thanks, Leslie. Um, uh, how did I get onto this story? That's a very good question. Um, I think I ran across it. I'm working on a new book right now, which is about basically how can we pull off or can we pull off the energy transition without trashing the planet in the process, right? And the idea in a nutshell is, you know, we're switching over to wind power, solar power, electric cars very quickly, which is good for the atmosphere, but it could be it has the potential to be really, really bad for the earth. Why? Because all those things, solar panels, wind turbines, electric car, batteries, and motors, they're all made of metal. So to build all that stuff, to build the infrastructure of the renewable energy future, we're going to need to mine 
billions of tons of metals, more metal than we've ever mined in the whole history of the world. So, so that's sort of where, like, like I say, I'm working on a, on a book about all that. So I'm looking at, you know, mining practices here and like recycling there and lithium mining in Chile and, 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 and cobalt mining in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and all the terrible problems that come with all that. And in amongst those, uh, I ran across what sounds like a completely crazy idea, but which is actually very close to becoming reality, which is this idea of let's drop some huge, you know, 30, 40, 50 ton robots onto the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and have them just scoop up all the metal that's down there. That's deep sea mining in a nutshell. And it's pretty frightening. You mentioned that there's there could be up to 21 billion tons of polymetallic nodules that could be strip mined off the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, let me just explain real quick what, what that is. So on the on the bottom of the Pacific uh, Ocean and in a few other spots around the world, there are these these rocks, like you said, called polymetallic nodules. And what they are is they're 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 just like you know little fist sized lumps that just happen to contain lots of the exact metals that we need for the energy transition. They're full of cobalt and nickel and copper, all of which are essential ingredients in electric car batteries. So all over the world, there's mining companies, governments, corporations, everybody is scrambling trying to find more and more of these particular metals, cobalt, nickel, especially copper also. Um, and it turns out there's huge amounts of them on the ocean floor, you know, incredible amounts of wealth that could be reaped, but it could very well come at the, at the cost of the oceans themselves. We might do, you know, unimaginable damage to the oceans in the process of pulling up these rocks. You seem to be, in in my world, paralleling some of the movies that I get to see. (laughs) (laughs) What are you watching these days? Oh, doom and gloom things Mm. sometimes. But um, when you wrote World in the Grain, I had just seen Sand Wars. Oh, yeah. Which was about many of the same issues that you touched on in your book. And then I was recently at the San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival where they showed Deep Rising. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that yet. How is it? Oh, you haven't seen it? It's That's the one with Jason Momoa, right? With Aquaman? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's dire. It's exciting. It's beautiful. I mean, they show all these amazing um, creatures who live down in the deep sea areas who would probably be affected by any sort of mining activity that went on. And in the summary of the movie, they call it sort of a Machiavellian choice, which I think is what we are facing. But in the movie, as in your book, the the main character is this Gerald Barron, mm-hmm. who seems to be very charismatic. My 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 guess from the movie is that he either commissioned it or agreed to be the the feature person on it, and and yet it poses such a big dilemma that hasn't really been well explored and addressed. And it sounds like in your article as well, you're saying, yeah, there's a lot of science that needs to be studied, and we're not really doing that. Yeah, I mean that's the big issue, right? Is these guys like Gerard Barron, who's the he's the CEO 
of a company called The Metals Company. Um, you know, it's as blunt as that. Um, and they're, they're really leading the charge. You know, you hear a lot about that particular guy because he's, his company's really at the forefront of really, really pushing to be allowed to start this, this deep sea mining. And they will tell you again and again, you know, oh, no problem. There's practically no life down there at the bottom of the ocean. We can do it in a, such a way that it, you know, won't hurt the, the ecosystem or the biosphere. Trust us. It's going to be fine. It won't cause any problems. But the reality is, I mean, pretty much any ocean scientist will tell you that actually we know very little about the very, very deep ocean. There's been very little research done on it because, you know, it's a very hard place to access. It's hard to do research down there. Um, we don't really know what's living down there. We don't know how the, 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 the life forms that are on the very bottom of the ocean, how they connect with um, things further up the water column, you know, all the fish and, and other life forms that we're more familiar with. We don't, we have no idea what, uh, what effect all the sediment that would be churned up by doing this would have on all that life. We just, you know, we, we basically barely know anything about what's on the bottom of the ocean or how mining would affect it. And to me, it seems completely crazy to say, well, let's just go ahead and do it and hope for the best and we'll see what happens. Well, when they did the mining pilot, I guess in October, um, mm -hmm. in your article, you say that they did some monitoring, but do we know what that means? Has anybody looked at it? And Yeah, there is. So they are, you know, so, so internet, so seabed mining, deep, deep ocean mining is, is currently, not allowed, not at commercial scale. Under international law, you're only allowed to do these these exploration projects, these pilot projects, to sort of see what it would what would happen. And you have to 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 be allowed to do that, to be allowed to do one of these pilot projects, like the metals company just did. You have to get permission from uh, a UN body called the International Seabed Authority. And part of that process is you have to have a certain amount of third-party monitoring that goes on. So there are like really top-notch um, ocean scientists that have gone out with each one of these expeditions in a separate vessel um, to conduct their own research alongside it and, and monitor all the impacts of it. But we're only, and we're only just starting to get back some of the data from that. Not from the, there was another, uh, uh, there's another company that's, that's uh, trying to get into this space called uh, Global Seabed Resources. And they uh, also did a test run, a pilot uh, expedition in, 2000, in, in 2022. And we're only just starting to get the first research back from that, the first papers looking at, you know, what actually happened. So, you know, the good news is there is a certain amount of monitoring that's going on. There is a certain amount of analysis that's happening on these pilot projects. Bad news is it's still at the very, very earliest phase. And is that second company you mentioned, are they the ones who lost their Tonka truck mining equipment when it was like 50 feet yes. from the surface? <gasps> exactly. That's them. They were hauling up their, their collector vehicle, their robot mining vehicle uh, from, you know, this thing was two and a half miles down on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, they were hauling it back up and the cable snapped and the thing just plummeted all the way back down to the bottom of the ocean. So being a um, perhaps proponent of this in a way, 
I mean, one of the big things I can imagine being a concern is the sediment plumes that get stirred up when you're churning along on the ocean floor. But mm-hmm. most things down there don't use light for sight for for hunting. Mm-hmm. So, what what are the issues with that? Um, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist, so I couldn't tell you everything that that there is to all the ins and outs of that. But I mean, sediment does more than just block than just block a uh, uh, light coming through, right? I mean, sediment is is matter. It's 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 stirred up particles of whatever was on the bottom of the ocean. Which again, we don't exactly know what those things are, but you know, we can imagine it's some kind of silt and uh, and uh, and organic matter. And also, there's certainly metals down there too, right? That's how these polymetallic nodules formed. So if all of a sudden it's, I mean, I'm just speculating here, right? Like, let's say you're a, you're a Dumbo octopus, which is a real thing that lives way down at the bottom of the Pacific ocean, right? <laughs> Love it. Have you seen pictures of these things? They're amazing. Uh-uh. They're, they're, I'll look for they're them. white and they have these huge ears, like, like an elephant. That's why they're <laughs> called Dumbo octopuses. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, these things have been living down there for God knows how many millions of years you know, in an undisturbed environment, and all of a sudden, the water that they're swimming in is going to be full of floating particles of who knows what, of, of all the silt, of all the muck and debris and little, you know, microscopic bits of, of, of metallic stuff. Who knows what happens when they breathe that in, when they ingest it, when it gets on their gills, when it gets into their reproductive systems, you know. I, I have no idea, and really nobody has any idea because, as I say, the research hasn't been done. Furthermore, it's not just the stuff. Again, it's not only the creatures that are on the bottom of the ocean that we have to worry about. We don't know how far that sediment plume will travel up the water column, how far all that all that muck and debris might travel laterally, uh, horizontally, horizontally as well as vertically from bottom to top. That's number one. Number two is... What happens is the way the mining is works is these these vehicles, these collector vehicles, um, cruise along the bottom of the ocean. They scoop up the nodules and then they shoot them up into a pipe. It's like a three mile long steel pipe that goes all the way up to a ship, a great big industrial ship that's floating up above it. There, the water comes shooting up with all with a bunt with all the sediment that's been dislodged. They dewater it. They they separate out the nodules from the water and then they dump all that water back over the side they, or they inject it back down into the water. So there's also a sediment plume that's going to be released from top to bottom, right? The sediment that's going to be dumped off of these ships back into the ocean, which again, nobody knows what the effect of that will be on, on all the light that's at the top of the, of the ocean, at the, at the highest uh, layers of the ocean. So there's that concern as well. And the urgency as i understand it for for trying to look at this now is this i guess unused section of the international seabed authority regulations 1516 is it yeah this is maybe the craziest part of this whole story is that uh like i said at the moment uh deep deep ocean mining is banned by international law nobody's allowed to do it and the idea is that this would the, the what it what it says in 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 the UN law of the sea 
you know, the sort of charter of the oceans that almost every nation on, on earth has signed on to is let's not do this until we can have done enough research to be certain that it's not going to damage the oceans, which seems like a pretty sensible position. However, deep, deep within this document, there's a little provision that says, oh, but if, if any member nation says, you know what, we don't care about the science, we want to start mining, that member nation can say that and that then triggers what's called the two-year rule. That's what you're talking about in paragraph 15. This two-year rule, which, which says basically, once a member station said, we want to mine, then the seabed authority, the International Seabed Authority, has only two years to come up with a set of rules and regulations about how it should be done, where you can mine, when you can't mine, how much, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if they haven't done that uh, within the space of two years, then the way the law is written, it looks like uh, deep seabed mining has to be allowed to go ahead, even in the absence of proper rules and regulations being in place, even in the absence of adequate research having been done. And that uh, happened almost two years ago. The metals company teamed up with a tiny Pacific Island nation called Nauru and got Nauru to say, we are members of the United Nations. We want to start seabed mining. Boom, the clock is ticking. So that two-year rule, now that two-year trigger expires uh, this summer in July. So unless something really dramatic happens, uh, the Seabed Authority is going to start uh, accepting applications for full-scale commercial scale seabed mining. And the metals company says they are ready to start uh, in 2024, to start pulling millions of tons of these nodules up from the bottom of the ocean. Wow. Well, what would stop the um, International Seabed Authority in their regulations from saying only 10 tons per year can be removed? If they can set the quantity, couldn't they do something like that to slow things down till they can get better understanding of what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what everybody keeps hoping that they will do. But so far, they have not. So far, they have not been able to. So they convened a bunch of sort of emergency meetings once the two-year trigger had been pulled. And they've had a lot of, you know, meetings. There's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of, you know, position papers issued. But as yet, they have still not come up with a set of rules like you're only allowed to harvest X amount or you're only allowed to harvest, you know, in in this uh you know, uh, at, at this time of year or whatever. So far, those rules don't exist. There's been a lot of talk, but no action so far. Wow. And I guess no one, there, this section 15 has never been used in any other situation. Is there a precedent for it? No, no, it's never been invoked before. Wow. It's totally, that's why there's so much uncertainty. Nobody knows what's going to happen because a lot of people are saying, forget it, like, you know, Paragraph 15, Schmeragraph 15, we cannot allow this to happen. Like France, for instance, has come out and said that. Like, we do not consider that legally binding. Uh, we don't, you know, we think it's a terrible rule. Other countries, though, like Great Britain, have said, you know what, we, we like the idea of deep sea mining. Let's go ahead and do it. And that's, uh, that's a big part of why there haven't been, there hasn't been any agreement so far. There haven't been 
they haven't come up with a set of rules is because uh, there's no agreement on on what those rules should be, or even whether deep sea mining should happen at all. I mean, lots and lots of people, hundreds and hundreds of scientists, uh, many uh, nations, even a lot of the corporations that would be in line to buy the nickel and the cobalt that would come up, a lot of those corporations have said, we don't support deep sea mining. We think it's a bad idea. We don't, we think it should, there should be a moratorium until uh, there's more better scientific understanding of what's going on down there. Is there a higher court to take this to if the ruling is not to either parties or the multiple parties' satisfaction? Yeah, not really. I mean, the idea of of the ISA, the International Seabed Authorities, it was it was created to be that higher authority, right? It was it was created way back, or the idea for it was launched way back in the '60s when people started when sort of you know, technology put things like seabed mining and, you know, sort of when we kind of became aware of just how fragile the oceans actually are and how much human impact, how much human beings are impacting them, you know, with overfishing and pollution and all the rest of it. And so the world, kind of the UN got together and said, well, we we really need a, a body, like somebody, somebody's got to be keeping an eye on this. Somebody's got to sort of take on the task of kind of governing the oceans for the good of everybody. And that's where, that's what the International Seabed Authority was created to be. And that's where this, the treaty that we're talking about comes from. The, it's called the Law of the Sea, the United Nations uh, uh, Convention on the Law of the Seas. It was signed, uh, they, it, the ball got rolling back in the 60s. I believe the treaty was created in the 80s. Pretty much every country in the world, except the United States, has signed on to it by now. Um, and it's used for that. That treaty covers lots and lots of things. It covers, you know, ocean pollution and, and and all kinds of other stuff. But one of the things under its mandate is is deep seabed mining, which has basically never really been pursued in a real way until now. So this is a totally totally uncharted territory that we're in. Wow. In your article, you mention uh, a. Uh, almost like a prophecy that came out of the mineral resources of the sea. I think it was John Merrow who wrote the report, or at least edited it. And he said, nodules could serve to remove one of historic, one of the historic causes of war between nations, supplies of raw materials for expanding populations. Of course, it might produce the opposite effect also, that of fomenting inane squabbles over who owns what areas of the ocean floor. And here we are. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I sort of feel like my first question to myself even was, which of those is is more, which side do I come down on? The squabbles or the removing causes of war? I feel like it sort of is going to cause some wars and maybe – also ferment squabbles, but where where do you stand on that? Well, I mean, listen, it's true that we need uh, we need huge amounts of uh, you know a specific list of metals in order to build all the electric car batteries and the solar panels and the wind turbines that we need to for renewable energy. Like that's that's a fact. If we're gonna if we're serious about confronting climate change, if we're serious about switching off of fossil fuels, that switch 
is going to require huge amounts of metal. That's a fact. It's also a fact that there's lots of metal on the bottom of the ocean. However, uh, it does not follow to me that therefore we should just blindly plunge ahead and just start ripping all this stuff up from the bottom of the ocean. I mean, there's lots of other places we, we can and currently are getting cobalt and nickel and copper and all the rest of it. And uh, we're not at the point, we're not in like some emergency point where we need to do something so drastic as strip mining the ocean when we really don't know what will happen if we do. I mean, let's not forget the oceans are already, first of all, let's remember the oceans are absolutely critical to all life on earth, right? If we really wreck the oceans, we're all dead, right? Um, and the oceans are already really badly stressed from massive overfishing, right? Which is only getting worse from massive pollution, which is only getting worse. Uh, from from climate change, which is only getting worse, right? The sea is warming in a in a you know to an extent that we've never seen before, and we have no idea what impacts that's going to have. Why in the world would we throw into this mix of of uncertainty? Why would we throw yet another source of potentially of potential danger? Why would we create yet another potential threat to this critical? biological system, the oceans. That's, to me, that seems crazy. Well, I'm certainly with you there, but I think it goes along the lines of the climate change denial that has been on for years that, well, the ocean is so vast, we really can't do that much damage to it. We're only talking about mm -hmm. a little part of the South Pacific. We're only, it's that only, it's that out of sight, out of mind, and the, the scales that people want to work with and get their heads around and the scales that they want to be able to overlook. So yeah, I, I see there being an uphill battle on that one and I wish it weren't the case, but yeah, but it certainly seems going on. Yeah. I mean, listen, it might be possible, right? Like you, it might turn out that uh, indeed there's, you know, there's not that much life down there and that if you're very, very careful about how you do the mining, that the amount of sediment can be very, very small and can be very contained. And if, you know, we've, we have figured out how to do large scale extractive industries without completely obliterating uh, the, the environment that it's happening in, right? We do know how to do sustainable logging. We do know how to you know, we do know how to do sustainable fishing. It's just that we don't really do it very often. So I'm open to the possibility that we could do deep sea mining in a way that wouldn't be uh, totally destructive, but we just don't know that yet. And I don't think there's any way we're going to know if, A, if that's possible, and B, how we could make that possible without many, many more years of, of research. So that's, that's sort of where I come down on it. It's like, I do not, we should not be doing it right now because we just don't know enough. Um, and we should be doing a lot more research and maybe down the road, we'll figure out that actually it, uh, it makes sense. And in that case, fine. But, uh, but it, like I said, to just be plunging ahead and doing it without even knowing what it is we're plunging into, that just seems crazy to me. You, you have not yet seen deep rising, but one of the things that, uh, 
Gerald Barron said in the movie that didn't get explored any more than his statement of it, and then it, it passed on, but it stuck with me. He made a, a comment to the effect that, well, what we want to do is just take what we need and then we'll stop. And I just couldn't think of another example in history of when we've ever stopped with our exploitation of resources once we've gotten started. So I just I couldn't understand how that would even be possible or if, if even the metal company itself, for whom he represents, would, would even do that. Because then there could be other companies that want to come in and take more and take more. So it's um, there was almost, I think he's a very smart man. And I think most of the people who are working in this have been very strategic in their efforts. But to have made that Pollyanna statement that we'll just we'll just take a little and then leave just seemed almost disingenuous. Yeah. Because once we have these resources, more and more of them are going to be we're going to find more and more uses for them. Yeah. I mean, historically, you're right. Like we've always what what has what has stopped resource extraction in a particular place is either if it runs out, like if you just cut everything, cut all the trees down or you mine everything out of the ground there is to mine. Or if something happens that's so terrible that you're forced to shut it down, like, you know, there's like some of the copper mines in, in New Guinea that were like so devastating to the rivers and coasts around them that they just had to shut them down. Or like Deepwater Horizon, you know, the, the oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico, things like that. But short of that, I, you know. Exactly. When has humanity as a whole ever said, okay, that's enough. We'll just stop there. We've got enough on our plate. That's that's just not how we're built. Of course, Deepwater Horizon has not stopped offshore oil drilling. But um, on the flip side, though, there there's a quote again that has stuck with me for years by someone in, I think it was in the uh, Dubai United Arab Emirates, saying that um, the Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stones. Mm-hmm. And that, with the idea that you know, technology led us to other options, mm-hmm. just as other things will lead us into this age of solar energy and getting away from fossil fuels. But then, what will be the next step? And in that Pollyanna view, that we'll only take what we need and then we'll stop. There is that idea that maybe technology will see that there are better ways to do this besides using all these incredible minerals, strip mining the ocean and doing doing also land strip mining to get them. But I think we're, far, uh, we're only starting into this new energy system, and I don't know that we will um, transition away from the high demand for cobalt, nickel, and other metals as quickly as we might hope. No, definitely not as quickly as we might hope. But I'll tell you, I mean, the to me, the real solution is uh, is not some new technology, but is actually figuring out a way to consume less, right? The whole idea, like the, the sort of paradigm of the, the energy transition right now is, okay, all these cars and trucks are causing a huge problem. They're the biggest source of greenhouse gases there is. So let's change every single car and truck on the roads right now into an electric vehicle. And then our problems will be solved. 
well, our problems won't be solved if we switch every car and truck on the road into an electric vehicle. Like I said, first of all, we're going to need, you know, gazillions of tons of metals to pull that off. You ask me, a much better solution is, no, let's see if we can take, right now there's about 1.2 billion uh, motor vehicles on the world's roads. Let's see if we could actually restructure our world a little bit. Let's see if we could re-engineer our cities a little bit. Let's see if we can come up with a, with a number of other fixes so that actually we end up with 800,000 vehicles on the road. Instead of, in other words, let's get rid of some of those motor vehicles. Let's replace some of them with bicycles, with public transit, with shared cars, with all these other things that are already starting to happen. Let's look at that. Let's look about look at how ways that we can reduce our consumption of natural resources rather than just looking for new sources of natural resources all the time. Right. There's that idea of reduce, reuse, recycle. Exactly. And there, there are also people talking about mining our landfills because there's been so much metal tossed into them over the years or taking all of our electronic waste and really strategically working toward extraction of the minerals that are there. Absolutely. That's, that's some of the stuff that I talk about in my, in my book. I've got a couple of chapters on exactly that. Uh, they call it, yeah, they call it urban mining. You know, the idea of, yeah, let's harvest our waste because our waste streams, our landfills, uh, even some of like the toxic waste sites that have been created by mines uh, are full of metals that we could extract. We actually know how to do it. It's just a matter of actually doing it. And that's a twofer, right? If you can clean up a landfill, if you can clean up a, a toxic tailings pond, and while in the process of cleaning it up, at the end of the process of cleaning it up, you've got a fistful of useful metals, hey, everybody wins. It's uh, a new way of thinking of things because we've been just using the resources we have, going to do areas, you know, burying things, and then just walking away from them and thinking that out of sight, out of mind. and dumping things in the ocean. Who knows how many minerals we have dumped into the ocean as fill or waste disposal that could also be extracted again. But it's, it's going to be a big shift in how we deal with many things and whether deep sea mining will be the one that is that tip of the iceberg to get us thinking differently. I hope it will be. Going back again to the International Seabed Authority, this Section 15, do, do you see this extraction action by Nehru uh, to be one that will lead to other activities? Or is it really going to be confined just to the deep sea mining that's being proposed now for polymetallics? Oh, that's a good question. You're because are you asking are they are we going to start mining other things besides polymetallic nodules out of the ocean? Yeah, yeah. Because another nation could come in and say, "Well, I want to mine all the coral." Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's very possible. There's other. Um, uh, there's other. There's huge amounts of minerals also in um, uh, what are they called? Massive sulfide crusts, which are these undersea formations that that tend to be in much shallower water. So they're actually a lot easier to get at. Um, and 
there have been some attempts to mine those. Now, those are not actually covered by, or a lot of them are, are not covered by the law of the sea because they're within the territorial waters of individual nations. So like Japan, for instance, is looking at uh, mining within their own, at sea mining within their own waters. So yeah, I think as soon as, you know, once somebody starts doing it, it makes it that much easier for the next person to do it. So, you know, it's once the floodgates have been opened, uh, there's no telling where it ends. So have you been to Nauru? I have not. I have not. I thought about going there, but it, it's, it's really remote. It's, it's hard to get to. It's expensive. And uh, I, I couldn't even get anybody there to talk to me on the phone or answer my emails or anything. So it didn't seem like it was going to be a very fruitful journey. It, it seems like it's a nation built on extraction of resources that was started by the Brits and Western economy, but they've now you know, sort of advanced it for their own purposes quite nicely. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tragic story, right? It was apparently this this beautiful, idyllic little South Pacific island, and then the British discovered it, and then they realized that it was full of um, uh, phosphates. Was it phosphates? I think so. Was it yeah. guano? Yeah, it's literally like, you know, seabird shit. Yeah. It's been accumulating for, you know, centuries, millennia, and it's full of these valuable phosphates. So different a sort of series of colonial powers, Western countries, Australia and New Zealand, and I think Germany took a crack at them. Basically, like, just strip-mined this place to the brink of oblivion um, and then sort of left it this, like, barren moonscape so all like pretty much there's only about 10,000 people who live there there was there's never been a lot of people but they've all been sort of pushed to the to the coastal strip because the highlands the the inland parts of the of the island have been just completely you know devastated and they have really sort of nothing like now they're part of the world economy they've been sort of forced into the world economy and they really don't have anything left to to sell so they've, you know, they sort of tried, took a stab at becoming sort of an offshore banking haven. That didn't really work out. They actually rent part of their land to Australia as a prison for immigrants, like a, a place where illegal uh, immigrants are, are detained, which is apparently a complete hellhole. You know, it's this place that's, you know, that was completely ravaged and despoiled by the West. And their attitude now is like, how dare you tell us we can't get rich strip mining the ocean when you bastards got rich strip mining us? And you, you know, you can kind of see where they're coming from, right? Yes, you can, but you could also hope that there are better ways to resolve that conflict than to kill off millions and millions of people as the ocean starts to die. Exactly. Well, but, you know, they'll tell you that, you know, as I say, they're, they've teamed up with, the, with the, the metals company, and the metals company will tell you that that's not actually a risk. So, anyway, there we are. Well, what, so this is, this is the book you're writing, and when do we expect to see this book come into print? I hope next year, hopefully about just around about a year from now, I'm hoping. I literally just sent the first draft off to my editor on Friday. Uh-huh. So I'm waiting to hear back what he has to say. And uh, yeah, 
You, you didn't want to hold off till summer where you could do the final chapter on the the seabed authority? Oh, I'm sure it'll be going back and forth between, you know, between me and the publisher for a while. So I'll, I'll get a chance to update it. But I, I will say like this whole arena, this whole area of not just deep, not just seabed mining, but of the whole, the energy transition and how are we going to get the minerals we need for it? It is changing so fast. It like so much is happening that most people aren't even aware of um, that, uh, you know, I, I am a little nervous about having to, you know, I'm going to be working until the last minute to keep it as up to date as I can. That's for sure. How was it to publish in Wired Magazine? I know you've done it several times. Do you like that? Yeah, I mean, I've been writing for them for a long, long time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great magazine. I've, you know, I've been I've been a fan since it started coming out in the '90s. And uh, yeah, what can I say? I mean, I, I have a great relationship with them. They've I've done a lot of work for them over the years, and they always give it nice play. They put this one on the cover, and uh, yeah, what can I say? And it seems like. Magazines have become such a, a forum for innovative and new ideas, maybe more so than even, I mean, I'm sure Wired Magazine would say it's been going on since the 90s, but um, that kind of here's what's going on right now type of magazine is in technology and science is a really great resource that doesn't seem to have been around for that long, except maybe you know, nature and science, these established, really peer-reviewed, big, big name journals. But I think Wired, Anthropocene. Have you ever read that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've got. I get them in my in my inbox. I can't say I read them as much as I'd like to, but, but yeah, they're out there. Undark is another one that I look at sometimes. You know about them? I don't. Oh, you should check them out. It's a similar kind of thing. It's it's similar to Anthropocene. It's uh it's all science, like science news, and a lot of like magazine type features on on big issues. Um, and the other one is do you know about Hakai magazine? H A K A I. I've heard of it, but never beyond that. Oh, Leslie, this is right up your alley. It's a it's a magazine about coastal science. No. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, check it out. Just Google Hakai Magazine. It'll pop right up. Yeah, it's actually published up here in British Columbia, where I live. And uh, it's connected. There's a nonprofit uh, research organization that puts it out. But they do some really good stuff. You know, I, I thought from the name, it was so much like Haiku that it was a poetry magazine. Mm. <laughs> I just thought, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a Polynesian word. I'm not sure. It's, it's a word in some non-English language that means something in relation to that has to do with coasts. I don't know. <laughs> Imagine that words that aren't in English that have meaning. Great. So um, I know with your book, you're not doing much reading at all, but what are you looking forward to reading now that you are sort of in that waiting period with your editor? Um, well, I'm reading, a, I'm reading a novel right now that's, that is great. It's called Burnham Wood. Uh have you heard of it? It's no. Really, it just it got a, won a bunch of awards this year. Um, anyway, it's really good. It's about um, it's about sort of this group of like radical environmental radicals in in New Zealand who uh, uh, who want who take over this this um, 
this uh, kind of big swack of land in the south of New Zealand because they want to use it to show that like permaculture and like sustainable farming can save the world. But little do they realize they're actually becoming the unwitting pawns of an unscrupulous tech billionaire. Ooh. Yeah, it's good. It's a really good read. Great. And to be honest, you know, what's really what's on my list of things to read is uh, The Edge of the Sea by Rachel Carson. I've, I'm sure for you it's a reread, but no, I've never read it. That's what I'm saying. Like I've, I've oh, wow. I'm embarrassed to admit that I've, yeah, like I got it when I was working on the Sand Book years ago, and I keep thinking, oh yeah, I got to read that. I mean, come on, Rachel Carson, you know. And yet, so, uh, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm aiming to get to that one. It's so prescient. It's, it's yeah. As- in some ways, it's as current today as it was when it was written 60 years ago. Yeah, it must be. It was sometime in the 60s it came out. So now that you've relocated up to Vancouver, do you have any favorite beaches up there you're going to be visiting? Well, if you know Vancouver, you know that Wreck Beach is far and away the, the greatest beach this town has to offer. Um, Tell about it. Well, it's a nude beach, for one thing. Okay. <laughs> Which for Vancouver it's gonna be cold most, most of the, of the year. year, yep, but you know, we're hardy up here. Um yeah, it's uh it's um it's this very uh it there's no road access to it. Um so you have to climb sort of climb up and down this really steep cliff. There's you know, there's a nice trail by now wasn't there when I was a kid but but it takes you know it takes a bit of doing to get there and you cannot drive there so it it sort of started I think way back in the 60s as this kind of hippie hideaway where like you could be naked and you could smoke weed and you could just like you know let your freak flag fly and it's still sort of that it's a lot more it's much better known and there's a lot more people there than there used to be but man it is still such a great place because uh it's just very, you know, there's no, there's basically no infrastructure down there. Like there's no roads and there's no, so there's no like, you know, uh, uh, snack shops and there's no sunglass, you know, vendors and stuff. But anybody who wants can go down there and like people like, you know, uh, like street vendors, like people make sandwiches and falafels and baked goodies and whatnot and different kinds of drinks and they sell them down there. You can just spread out a blanket and sell your stuff or your jewelry or your t-shirts or whatever. And it's just got a really, really great, you know, sort of like parking lot of a, of a jam band rock show vibe to it. Nice. How about trash? Do people actually take stuff back with them? They do, yeah. There's a very uh, there's a very active group of volunteers that's been running the place, the Wreck Beach Preservation Society, that's been active for years and years. And uh, yeah, they do a really good job of you know keeping the place clean and making sure everything nothing gets too out of hand. Nice. Yeah, yeah. If you're ever up here, I'll I'll take you down there. I don't think I can make it up and down cliffs these <laughs> days. I just got a cortisone shot yesterday in my knee. I- I'm hoping for miracles. I know it's possible, but otherwise, yeah. Um, so with my knee in mind, where else would I go? Well, we have lots of really nice beaches here. Um, I would recommend, well, it depends what you're looking for, you know. Um, 
there's a in English Bay is is probably the number one like out of towners beach because it's right it's right off of of uh, a really busy part of the city like it's really the west end which is this great part of town it's full of all kinds of you know restaurants and cafes and shops and all this kind of fun stuff uh and then you literally cross the street and you're on this big wide beautiful beach with this gorgeous view of vancouver island and the mountains to the north and yeah it's really spectacular but as a result it gets kind of crowded for my taste so I prefer if I'm going to drive to a beach. There's a couple of beaches called uh, uh, Jericho and Locarno Beach, which are on way on the other side of town, um, uh, sort of on the other side of the bay that Vancouver is on. That are a lot just just a lot mellower. Okay, so we've got your favorite beaches, your best reading activities right now. Um, what is your book going to be titled, or is that still in the making? Yeah, working title is Power Metals. Okay. So if you or any of the your listeners have a have other suggestions to offer, I'm open. Well, any other final words of wisdom and new new insights into sediment that you want to share? <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, since I'm talking to a, a bunch of uh, coastal aficionados, I just um, played a very small role in a very big project um, about sand, about the whole issue of the worldwide sand crisis everything from you know ocean dredging to to river sand mining to erosion to like everything that you can think of that pertains to the issue of sand there's an outfit called the environmental reporting collective that just did a huge project that spans uh 12 different countries all over uh asia north america uh, there's about 70 different journalists around the world that all contributed to this there's there's articles there's videos there's maps it's a really fantastic project uh, and you can find it at beneath the sands dot earth all one word beneath the sands dot earth i really really recommend it okay i'll look for it yeah check it out let me know what you think wonderful well this has been great yeah likewise I, I wish it hadn't been so long since we last spoke, but if you're ever down in the Bay Area, please come look for me, and likewise, I will look for you up in Vancouver. All right. Sounds great. Will do. Well, we'll be in touch, I'm sure. Like I say, the book will be out, uh, you know, hopefully in a year or so, so, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to, to do another podcast or something, or at least yak about it. That would be great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shorewords. Vince has certainly been an enlightening conversationalist and his books, his work of World in a Grain was amazing. I expect that Power Metals or whatever it ultimately will be called is going to be well worth reading as well. In the meantime, look at his article in Wired Magazine or uh, take this hint about beneath the sands.earth and look at what they're talking about for sediments. Till next time. I hope you enjoy the coast and your views toward the shore. Thank you.